We'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my love by fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other each esteem others better, better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without the fault, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Let's pray before we dive in here to verses 5 through 11 this morning. Father, we thank you for granting to us and sending to us your only begotten Son. We praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge with gratitude your Holy Word. Teach us today what it is to have the attitude of your Son, Jesus. See that our lives are spent endeavoring to be more like your son. Open this passage, Father, to us that we might see what we're called to. Allow us to see the the length to which you went to provide our salvation and move us, Lord, to take action on your behalf in light of your highly exalted son, Help us, Lord, to remember what happened at salvation. And as a body, I pray you would draw us together in unity. That you would get us, Lord, to come together on the same page. And as we look into your word today, help us grasp the significance of going low. Having this lowliness of mind. Your your son, as we see in the text today, exhibited this attitude of humility. And your word expects the same of us in the context of your church. 
We pray, Lord, that you would let it be so. For your glory and honor, let it be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the big idea this morning, as we look at the text, pattern your attitude after Christ. Pattern your attitude after Christ. When we think about a pattern, we think about following something, following someone, and what they're doing. You have a pattern. You're looking off of something to know what to do. You have a pattern. You're looking at how to construct something. You have a pattern. You're trying to figure out how to work something out, and and you need a pattern to go off of. I believe the text this morning calls us to pattern our attitude after that of Christ. And we're going to see here as we look at the question we'll be dealing with, why? We'll be asking, why? Why pattern yourself after Christ? And I'm sure sitting here you can probably come up with some really good answers of your own. Why that's a good idea. The text that we're going to be covering also gives us some really good answers. Helpful answers to the question. Why pattern yourself, your attitude after Christ? You remember in the scripture we covered this summer, we were going through the books of the Old Testament and we saw that God there in the first five books gives Moses a pattern. You remember that? He gave Moses a pattern for building. Build this according to the pattern. And if you recall, the pattern that that God gave to Moses, was it not filled with all kinds of detail? We saw, and probably as we read some portions of that text, some of us are going, okay, okay, all right, we got it. But you know, think about it from Moses' perspective. Moses got the whole pattern. He knew how to then build it. Because God gave him all of the details. He gave him the instructions that were necessary to build. Pattern your attitude after Christ. I want you to know this morning that the pattern that he's given to us is more than sufficient. We don't have to look elsewhere for the pattern. He's given it to us. And he's given it to us, as we'll see, from his word. He's given it to us through his son. And he's given it to us himself by what we'll see in these last few verses of the text today. Pattern yourself. Pattern your attitude. Let's remember the context of where we've been to this point too, church. Paul has been instructing the church at Philippi, right? Conduct yourself, chapter 1, verse 27. Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. In other words... Be a citizen, not just a Philippi. Be a citizen of heaven as you live here on earth. Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel so that whether I'm able to come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. What's he hoping to hear? The text tells us he's hoping to hear that they stand fast in one spirit, that they're striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. In no way terrified of their enemies. For to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his name's sake. And as we covered last week, he then reminds them about what happened. Right? In verse 1 of chapter 2, he's asking these questions or these clauses we talked about last week. Remember what Christ has done for you. For in doing so, you fulfill my joy, Paul says. And where we ended last week, we talked about how he's not just fulfilling, as we carry these things out, we're not just fulfilling Paul's joy. We are fulfilling the very joy of Christ himself, that he prayed to the Father from John chapter 17. As we saw last week, the introduction, the the 
entry point, if you will, into this attitude of humility. It's introduced in the text last week. Be like-minded. We talked about what it is to be in unity, right? Have the same mind, uh, have the same love, go about it the same spirit, have the same purpose, the same one purpose. Nothing done in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There it is. It's, It's introduced to us right there. In lowliness of mind, let each other esteem the other better than himself. We talked about verse 3 and verse 4. And verse 3, the difference there being how we view people. Verse 4, then, how we value people. Right? So all of that said, it gets us and prepares us. I said last week, really, last week's message and this week's message, they really go hand in hand in many ways. Last week really introduces this concept of lowliness of mind. This week, Paul takes a segment of the passage of Scripture. And whether, whether or not, as some believe that this these verses here in 5 through 11 being a part of a, an old hymn, right, being inserted here in the text. We don't know with great certainty, but there's some idea and thought that what we have here before us is an old hymn that's put before us. But the important point that we do know is what this says, and we can go off what it says, and we can pattern our attitude after Christ. So ending 4 and going right to 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, the first question here, as we're thinking about this, why pattern yourself after Christ? Why pattern your attitude after Christ? Here, verse 5, I think, helps us as we look at at the first point here. God's word commands it, okay? God's word commands it. This is the first thing we see from the text. This is from verse 5. God's word commands it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The structure and the rendering of the verse here is is an imperative. And you guys all know, I think probably at this point, an imperative is a command. It's not an option. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Some translations may have this rendered a little bit differently. Let this mind, let this attitude, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let me just ask this question right up front. Is that a high bar or what? Huh? Let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How many of you are just ready to throw in the towel and quit after you hear that verse? Some of you maybe are. You hear that, well, there's no way. I mean, Avery brought forward in the Lord's Supper about you know, him being man, but yet he was perfect, which is far different from any of us. But when you hear that Christ is perfect, does it, does it turn you off to trying to then obey what he's called you to do? Or does it raise your motivation to try and please this one? I think it's important we ask that question of ourselves. Let this mind be in you also. This mind that was in Christ. Now, I do believe verse 5 here points us backward in the text and it points us forward in the text. Let me explain. Again, why pattern yourself, why pattern yourself and your attitude after Christ? God's word commands it. That's the first thing out of the gate here in verse 5. But when he says, let this mind be in you, we go backward in the text to what mind? What kind of mind are we speaking of? Remember, the Bible has already said just a few verses prior, lowliness of mind has been talked about. Let this mind be in you, church at Philippi. Let this mind be in you all, church at Hope in Christ. He's speaking to us as well. Let this lowliness of mind be in you. Let it become a pattern in you. He's pointing back. But he's also, in verse 5, pointing us forward. Because as what we're going to see in verses 6 through 11, he's pointing us to one who has this mind. And that person is Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you. 
this lowliness of mind, let it be in you, that mind that was in Christ Jesus. And now it's almost as though Paul is saying, let me show you, let me tell you about this person, Jesus. Let me describe for you a little bit about his mind, a little bit about his attitude. And so now for these next few verses, Paul is going to describe. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it begins with who? It's picking up the person of Christ. Why pattern yourself after Christ? Why pattern or your, your attitude after that of Christ? I think it's important that we understand God's word commands it. Listen, this is a, a side note to the text, but I think a very important side note. When God's word commands you and me to do something, how often are we simply obeying it and doing Carrying it out versus, I don't know about that one. How often do we, when we read a command in the scripture, tend to rationalize the command? And we can rationalize it for a few different reasons. Maybe we don't really want to do it. Go make disciples. Is that an option? No. And we read the Bible and we see time and time again the number of commands, the number of imperatives that are in the text. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Is it an option? No, he's called us to come together. God's word commands it. What's, what, what are we getting at here really when we stop to think about God's word commanding, not just that this attitude be in us, but the whole principle that's grounded here, God's word commanding us. Listen, I would ask the question. When God commands us something through his word, are we obedient to what he has to say? When God commands something of us in his word, are we receptive to hear what he has to say? Are we willing to just simply obey what he's called us to? It's important, I think, to ask that question that's behind the scenes. It's a bigger question than just the one that's being posed here in the text. But a very significant question in all of our life. If we are going to church, pattern our attitude after Christ, we, have, we must be about obeying what his word tells us, commands of us. And exhorting one another onward to do this as well. Okay? So that's verse 5. I, I, was, I was drawn to uh, one of the lines that Ferguson wrote here from verse 5. Again, thinking about this lowliness of mind, this humility that's going to be exemplified in Christ here in these next few verses. But he says in verse 5, when, when it says, let this mind be in you, or let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I, I really appreciate these words. He says, to be proud is to act out of character for those who are Christ's. We're, we're to let the mind of Christ be in us. To, to be proud is to act out of character for those who are Christ. To be humble-minded is to be our truest selves in him. I thought that was excellent. We are at our truest selves in Christ when we are acting and operating in humility. And when we are acting in pride, we are acting out of character if we are in Christ. Why have this attitude? Why? Why pattern your attitude? First of all, God's word commands it. Let's move on to the second point, which is going to be looking at verses 6, 7, and 8. 6, 7, and 8. God's son is worthy. And the text is going to bear this out. God's son is worthy. In other words, if we're looking for someone to 
follow as an example or a pattern. If, if we're called here to pattern ourselves, our attitude after that of Christ. How many of you here, when you're looking for a, an example to follow, a pattern to follow, you want to find the best one out there? Huh? You, you want to find the best one. You, you're not going to settle for something that's, that's not very good. I want to tell you this morning from, from the Word that this pattern we're to follow for our attitude, we, we have someone who is perfect, literally perfect, a perfect pattern to follow. Because of that, he's worthy. And because of some other things we'll see here, he's worthy. Look at the text. Who, it's picking up from Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, there's two things here specifically that I'd like to just maybe jot down uh, for you in thinking about from the text. The text specifically brings these forward. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. When it says in verse 6, being in the form of God, by the way, the idea of being there has in mind an existence that has been in continuation. Being in the form, he's he's pre-exist, he's always been. These verses say a lot about who God is, a lot about who God's Son is. Help us understand a little bit of the background of Jesus Christ. I read to you this morning from Luke chapter 2, that birth narrative of Christ. But I hope we understand and know that Christ has been around. For the Bible tells us that he was with God in the beginning. Right? There was nothing that was made that Christ didn't have his hand as a part of that. Christ has always been around. We see here in the text, his son is worthy. Why pattern yourself? Why pattern your attitude after Christ? He's worthy. Verse 6. Being in the form of God. The form of God. I think for a lot of us here, as we think about form, this is a very important word for us to get and grasp in the text. Uh, it's, it's a word that we typically get for, for morph. Uh, morphe is the original word. But it really, it, it has in mind this outward expression that comes really from our truest inward sense. An outward expression that comes from our inward, uh, ex- uh, who we are. In fact, I think the NIV has it this way, who being in very nature, God, it's, it's right on point, because it's speaking to who he is at his core. He's God. The text is making a, a very strong declaration here about Jesus. This is the pattern, the one we're following And this Jesus is God. He's inherently God. And what we're going to see, what's contrasted here, is is really the difference between what he is on the inside and what he appears to those on the outside. Because what he appears to those on the outside is that of man. Right? And the text is going to be looking at some of these things. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery... Did not consider it robbery. That word robbery is also an interesting word. It's, it's really uh, the word for a, a prize or something to uh, grab a hold of. When we think about this text. It says, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
In other words, some translations here will tell us as we think about God's Son being worthy. He was in the form of God. His outward expression, well, what was inside of him, he's, the fact that he is God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped, that is, his equality with God. That's some of the translations, his equality with God. He didn't use that as and grasp a hold of that to use that, even though it was at fully his privilege and disposal to use. I think it's important for us to understand two terms here when we think about this passage. One is possession and one is expression. When the text says that he emptied himself, it's important we understand what he emptied himself of. I want to make very clear, he didn't empty himself of being God. Can we be clear on that? Okay, His possession. He, he, was, he was God in the flesh. So what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of using the very rights that were at his disposal as God. He, he, he set those aside. Remember the bigger picture here. Paul has been talking about this lowliness of mind. And he's been talking about to the church at Philippi, you're to consider others better than yourselves. You are to not only consider and view others better, but you're to value them. You're to look out for others' interests. How, do, how does that happen? We talked last week. The only way that happens is through a humility. An attitude of humility. That's why it's so important. Now, Paul is addressing this pattern that we ought to have in Christ Jesus. This is the pattern that Christ himself had. God's son had and exhibited this pattern, church. He was God, and yet he set aside all of the prerogatives, all of the rights he had as God in order to, as we'll see in just a moment, Look out for your interest and my interest. It's, this is an amazing thing when we understand what he did. Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. He didn't, he didn't consider it a thing to hold on to in terms of his equality with God. But what's the text say in verse 7? He made himself of no reputation. Here's where we get our, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't hold on. He didn't grasp on to these things of deity. He was deity. He was God. But he didn't use them. He set them aside. Just a reminder here. I think it's really clear when we read all four gospel accounts. One of the things you see in all four gospel accounts in regard to the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who laid down his life. He yielded his spirit. He breathed his last. And remember when he's talking back in earlier in John's gospel and he says that I'm the good shepherd. And I can lay it down. I can take it up. The father had given him that authority. No one took his life. He laid it down. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. Then there's a couple participle phrases here that go along with this emptying. Taking the form of a bondservant. By the way, that word form there is the same word form in verse 6. Same word. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Taking the form of a bondservant. You know, there was a day when he was in his, his pre-incarnate state versus his incarnate state and the difference between the two, being with the Father in the heavenlies and being here on earth with man. When he came down here to earth as a man... He took on the form of a servant. 
In fact, elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Jesus himself says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. He came to serve. But thinking about that outward, that form, the form of a bond servant. There again, it's inherent in his character of who he is. One on the outside wouldn't be able necessarily just to look and see, perhaps, that he was a bond servant. This was truly at the heart of who Christ was. He was a bond servant. And his life is lived out, and especially we see this later in the Gospels. In fact, you can turn to it. I think it gives us a good expression of this bond servant. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 13. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, right? He had come from God, came from heaven to earth, and he was going to go to the cross, the grave, and he was going to go back and ascend and be exalted by God. He rose from supper. Listen to these terms. It's important we understand that, that in this particular meal setting, servants were the ones that were typically set aside to wash the feet, weren't they, in the house. On this occasion, which is shortly before the cross, Jesus himself gets up from supper, and I'm wondering if, if, if the disciples around him, as they're reclined at the table, dirty feet and all, are thinking and wondering, why is he doing this? What's the text say? He rose, he laid aside his garments. You see the image here? He laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And you see this interchange with Peter. Jesus says, in verse 11, he knew who would betray him. They said, you are not all clean. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example. I've given you a pattern that you should do as I've done to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus not only removed his garments, laid aside his garments, he serves, and then he put his garment back on. That, that whole imagery encompasses what he did when he came. He left his father's throne above. Right, we sang that this morning. So infinite, so free. He came down here for time. And though God, he laid aside his garments. He dies. He goes to the cross. He's buried three days later. He's raised. He's ascended back to the Father. His garments, if you will, metaphorically speaking, back on. He didn't lose his godness. He was God through all of this. But I believe the picture that's in John 13 is a beautiful picture that helps us see the image of what Paul is describing here in Philippians chapter 2. Made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, taking the form, the form, the outward expression of a bond servant. 
and coming in the likeness of men. Coming is a transition word. Jesus transitioned into another state of being from heaven down here to earth. Coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance. The word appearance is also an interesting word. In fact, that word appearance is a contrast to the word form in verses 6 and 7. Being found in appearance. That's an outward expression that really results from something you would see with your own eyes. In other words, what, what's, what the text is saying is that being found in appearance as a man... It had nothing to do with what was on his inside. We talked about form, really this outward expression of what's truly on the inside. But appearance here is a word that talks about the outward expression that you can tell of someone just simply from looking at them. So being found in appearance as a man, could they look at him and see, he looks just like a man, absolutely. They could tell just from their eyes. Being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. Let's realize something that this humility that's exhibited by Christ. He humbled himself from coming out of the heavenlies down here to earth. First, think about, you know, we talk about uh, what's good, and we think about, oh, wow, this is great. And we go from, we upgrade. In no way, shape, or form did Christ upgrade when he came here. Uh, one of the songs, uh, he came down to our level, <laughs> right? He came, da- he, he came down to be among us. And praise God, this is the, um, the light. Remember in, in I believe it's in Isaiah and in the prophecy talked about a light has dawned. Because <laughs> this world was dark. Christ came and he's the one who brought the light. We don't manufacture the light in and of ourselves. He brought the light when he came. He humbled himself. But listen, Christ as God, not only was, was that very act of leaving the heavenly And coming to the earth in itself, humiliating, a humbling act. But as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. He became obedient. It's important for us to understand as we look at patterning, pattern our attitude after Christ. Why? God's word commands it. Why? God's son is worthy. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself, uh, the word here, up to the point of death. To the point of death. He became obedient to the point of death. The verse doesn't end there. Even to the death on a cross. That, that word there, that, that's even, it's a, it's a conjunction, really. It has in mind oftentimes this, this intensification. When you look at that in the way that it's ended, even to the point of death. Death, even the death of the cross. Even the death, this is a, uh, what's called a, a genitive of production. Even the death that produces, that's produced by the cross. The death that's produced by the cross. We see this this same form in Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit that is produced by the Spirit. The, The death, the emphasis that Paul is getting at here as he's speaking about Christ humbling himself, he became obedient to death all the way up to the point of death. Even he's emphasizing not just the fact he died, but what kind of death he died. This was a shameful, humiliating, embarrassing death reserved for rebels, reserved for the lowest of slaves, reserved for criminals. Even the death on a cross. 
he humbled himself to this. Remember, he's God. And there are some folks who, as they read the text, some folks who believe that that phrase that he emptied, he made himself know that he threw off his godlike qualities. No, he's still God. The whole purpose of this 5 through 11 is Paul again. He's bringing out to the church of Philippi this need to practice an attitude of humility. And he's showing here in 6 through 11 what that attitude of humility looks like in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. I think as we look at this text and we're able to see and know that we are called here to a pattern, to pattern ourselves. We see one who went before us, one who is worthy. I hope you can see and acknowledge from the text that he is worthy to pattern our attitude after. Who would not want to pattern an example or attitude after one who willingly laid down his life for you? That's what he did. He laid aside the expression of his deity. He comes in the likeness of men. His expression of his humanity came not from his inmost nature as God, but it was assumed in the incarnation. And so he's contrasting who he is in himself, God And what he appears to the eyes of men being found in appearance as a man. So what we see in verse 7 and as a a contrast from verse 8. This self-humbling in verse 7. In his character as God the Son. Contrasted with verse 8. His self-humbling is deemed an act. It's, it's characterized by the act of our Lord as the Son of Man. What was that act, church? That act was death on a cross. So, so really we see this self-humbling characterized in two different ways with Christ. Who he is, his character, and also what he does. What act he carried out was death on a cross. Well, the text doesn't end there. It keeps going, and we see that not only why the pattern, why pattern your attitude after Christ, God's word commands it, verse 5, God's son is worthy, verses 6 through 8, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a shameful, cruel cross. But as we see in these last few verses... Verses 9 through 11. God himself approves of him. God himself approves of him. We could probably say this in a few different ways. God himself sets his seal upon his son. In verses 9 through 11. In fact, let's read those last few verses. Give you a flavor of what we're talking about here. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 
The rendering here has in mind a result. What's the result from? The result comes out of what we just read in verse 8. As a result of Christ humbling himself all the way to death. All the way even to death on a shameful cross. To be crucified, to be killed and executed wrongly. What was on the other end of that? It's about as low as you can go. And again, he went low, not for himself. This is one of the points Paul is drawing out here. Christ went low to look out for yours and mine, our best interest. Christ went low in order that you and me could receive the very thing we needed to receive. And the only way that was going to happen for us to receive Christ and to conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven, the only way that happens is if Christ is raised and Christ dies. And the only way Christ is going to do that is if he himself sets aside his divine rights and privileges for but a time in order to satisfy God's wrath, remember God's wrath? It's going to be poured out. And Christ is part of this humility, part of his death on the cross. Christ essentially takes the wrath that's intended for every one of us because of our sin. Because it's our sin that separates us from God. And Christ willingly, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God took him who became, he became a man. And he took our sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. One writer said that 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 idea of highly exalted is super exaltation. And it's really an incredible contrast between what came just previously. Low, low. Someone gave a a picture and an image. I'd love to have had one of you make me a catapult this week. I I figured it might be too big of a project, so I didn't call anybody. A catapult. You know, something that that, that ratchets down. And then it gets to a point, and then what happens? Boom! Springs. We see Christ goes low. Low, how low? To the point of being obedient to what? Death on a cross. But the Bible says three days later, what's he doing? He raises. He's raised up. He's raised up. He's exalted. God has given him the name as he's exalted him. Highly exalted him. Given him. That word given is the same word we saw last, uh, a few weeks ago, talking about um, Granted, he is granted. Verse one, or chapter one, verse twenty-nine. He's graciously granted. It's same here. God has highly exalted him and graciously bestowed favor upon his son. And what's he done? Verse nine tells us, given him the name, given him the name, the name. What name? He's given his son the name. I tend to believe we got the name given to us in verse eleven. We'll get to that here in just a moment. But he's given to him the name that is above every name. Where has Christ been? He's been low. And he didn't grasp for any of the the treasure, any of the things that he could have grasped for as God. He set those aside. He went low and God exalted him and he given him the name. This name is above every other name. And there's two reasons for Christ's exaltation. Don't miss this in the text. Verse 10 and 11 gives us the two. That, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. At the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow. Tell me, church, when you hear that phrase, every knee should bow, what picture does that remind you of? A knee bowing. Perhaps for some of you it's reverence. It's awe. It's submission. It's authority. It's worship. Maybe a combination of all of those things. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, just in case you're not clear about every knee, he gives us a a, a threefold place description. In heaven, in earth, and under the earth. That about covers it. So any knee you can think of, At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. He's not done, though. That's one very important, significant reason for Christ's exaltation. Here's the second one. Verse 11. And that every tongue, every knee... Every tongue. In some instances, the tongue is language, right? Language, glossa. Every tongue should confess or say the same thing as, in this case, who are we saying the same thing as? God. Should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There, I believe, church, is the name, Lord. At the name of Jesus, who is this Jesus? Who's God declaring this Jesus to be? He is Lord. He's Lord over all. This one who went low, I'm exalting him. I'm lifting him up. I'm raising him to a point, a place of high honor above every one. There are, there's no one above this one. God himself is putting his stamp of approval on it. You know, I, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of parts of books. And one of the things that helps me determine whether or not I want to read a book, I oftentimes will look on the back of the book and see who recommends the book. If I find a name on the back of the book that I've read one of their books and I actually like what they wrote, my antenna goes up a little bit, like, wow, this, this could be a good book to read. But if I look on the back and I see as part of the recommendations a list of people that either I don't agree with or people I just don't know, I'm not real sure whether or not I want to read the book. Paul here, as he's writing and finishing this section here in Philippians 2, he's telling us God himself has approved. If you're wondering whether or not Christ is worthy, if you're wondering whether or not you ought to be patterning your attitude after that of Christ, think about it in this way. God himself has, has written the recommendation. You think about turning the book over. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out this morning whether or not I'm going to pattern my life after Christ. Is he really worth it? I don't know for sure. Is he worth it? I want you to know something, that if you flip the book over and you're trying to figure out, is he really worth it? I want you to know, God himself puts his stamp of approval on the sun. And he's saying, every knee shall bow. Every tongue. Listen, it's one thing to bow. A sign and spirit of submission, humility, worship. But it upgrades significantly when we talk about every tongue confess. Every tongue. Just as we said every knee, every tongue confess. Listen, every tongue. It's one thing to bow. It's another thing to actually give confession. An admittance to what? What are they going to confess? What is every tongue going to confess one day? Jesus is Lord. Every tongue. 
That's a pretty amazing thing to think about for just a moment. But you know, I hope one of the things it does as we come to a close in the text, I hope it's a stirring reminder for us of what ought to be in our own life. That someday the entire universe will agree with God the Father on the testimony which he's given of his Son. One writer says it this way. If the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place, verse 9, he will find any lesser honor accorded to his Son intolerable. Here then is one way in which we can recognize those whose hearts are really in tune with God's. What do they make of Jesus? If we do not desire to see him honored, if we, if we come to the conclusion, no, he's not worthy. Uh, we come to the conclusion, it's really not, he's really not all that important to pattern our attitude and our life after. then we need to understand that we're at odds with the Father because the Father set him to the highest place of honor. He's exalted him to the highest place. I believe there's a question that comes at the end of this that we all ought to be thinking about. It ought ought to be a stirring question in all of us has Jesus' humiliation for our sake, that, remember, for our sake, he laid aside his rights, he did this for our sake, has Jesus' humiliation for our sake led us to the logical conclusion that our knee should bow to him here and now? Because the reality is this, whether one says yes to this or not, There's coming a day when every knee is going to bow. There's coming a day when every tongue is going to confess. Jesus is Lord. And all of this to the glory of God the Father. I want to point out one thing before we close. It's interesting, and you read the Gospels and you see the things that Jesus spoke. I've been drawn of late to the words of Jesus and Matthew chapter 23 are pretty much all red letters. In verse 11 he says, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus spoke this and Jesus lived this by the way. Right? All the way to the cross. But look at verse 12 of chapter 23 in Matthew. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. A little principle or axiom here of Christ. Did he not live this out himself? You know, it's one thing when someone says something. It's another thing when someone says something and actually carries that forward and does it. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There are going to be people who will continue their life and will continue to exalt themselves in this life. And there's going to come a day when they will be humbled as a result of that. They will be brought low. But he who humbles himself, can I insert now? while we have breath of life. He who humbles himself will be exalted. This is one of the beauties, church, of our union with Christ Jesus. We died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. Just as Christ went low and died and was raised so too, when we die, when we're absent from the body, we'll be present with the Lord. What a beautiful thing to see. What an encouraging thing to know. 
there's a sense of uh, wonderful, blessed assurance in knowing these things. I want to leave you with the kind of the bottom line on why we have this exaltation. So you have really 6 through 8 is speaking to the humiliation, the humbling of Christ coming down here as man in the form of man, fully God, fully man. He dies to the point of death, going to a cruel, shameful cross. And it's, it's as a result of that that God therefore exalts him to the highest place. And he says that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. The writer said that the greatest, the great message of Christ's exaltation is that he reigns. He reigns. We sing it, don't we? Our God reigns. Our God reigns. That's one of the greatest messages right here in his exaltation. Our Lord reigns. He is Lord. I would ask you this morning, do we have a pattern worthy here to follow in Christ Jesus? I I hope, based on the text, I hope we can acknowledge that we do. Again, remind you that God himself has put his stamp of approval on his son and said, yes, he's worthy. You can trust him. He's my son whom I love, whom I've set my affection upon. Oh, and by the way, God's word commands it. This is the way we're to live. He's Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you for this passage in in so many ways because it's awakened in me uh, an urgency. It's awakened in me um, a need to carry out in the, in the present, what you've called me to, to be in Christ. It's an, it's an urgent message, Lord, for all of us in Christ. For it speaks of a time to come, a judgment to come, if you will. When every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord, I know sitting here today around us, there are all kinds of folks that we can think of and that our minds are drawn to, people who don't know Jesus or haven't yet believed and received in this Christ whom we're reading about here this morning. We all know some people who have not yet bowed the knee and submitted themselves to Christ and proclaimed Him to be Lord of their life. And Father, while we continually to, uh, continue to engage in our prayers for these, I pray that this text also encourages us and spurs us on to follow the pattern that's been set before us in your Son, Jesus Christ. You've commanded us to walk this way. We are now under obligation, being in Christ, to walk as Christ himself walked. And as we've seen already in this book of Philippians, walking and abiding in Christ is not just walking on a mountaintop all the time. It includes suffering. It includes hardship. But it includes now an understanding of the one that we look to actually went that same place. He went, in fact, he went to a cross and he died. He gave his life for us. So, Father, we rejoice in that. We celebrate the salvation that you have given to us through our Lord, Jesus Christ. 
may our lives be lived out in a way that we bow our knee, thinking about the, the words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that, that in our hearts we, we have this submission to Christ that we carry around with us in our hearts. We bow our knee to him as we go about our day. We, we bow our knee and we, we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just talk about God, but we talk about Jesus because it's at the name of Jesus. We must be about living in such a way that we're unashamed to speak the name of Jesus. Lives are at stake. Father, you've, you're very clear in the passage here. And so I pray for us as a church here at Hope in Christ, Lord, that our lives would be patterned after the example of Christ himself, the one who went low on our behalf, the one who set aside his privileges, the one who not only set aside his privileges, but he also became obedient to death on a cross for our sake. Lord, it is true, as we sing here in a moment, it's true, without Christ, we can do nothing. Without him, we're lost. But with him, we praise you and thank you that we're saved. May that spirit carry with us throughout our days that we become glad and rejoice not only in what we have through Christ, but we would also see that because we have what we have in Christ, it would then motivate us, knowing the terror and judgment of God to come. We therefore persuade men. May it move us into action. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.